Welcome to Trauma Talk. On today's episode, we're reviewing a case study that happened right here in the trauma base with two of our trauma PAs, Colder and Stacy. You can find a link to the published article on our landing page at wesleytraumatalk.podbean.com. Colder and Stacy, thank you for being here. Would you go ahead and introduce yourself? My name is Calder Young, and I'm a physician assistant that works in the trauma department here at Wesley Medical Center here in Wichita, Kansas. My partner Stacy and I have been excited to come here and have the opportunity to explain a very exciting and unique case, the case of the magic bullet. Yes, Aaron. Thanks for having us. As Calder said, we are really excited to be here with you today. I'm Stacy Nelson, one of the other trauma PAs here at Wesley. Hopefully we can not only discuss a really interesting case, but maybe even provide a little insight to what it's like to be in the trauma bay of a level one facility. For those who may not be familiar with what we do, as the physician assistant, our job is to work alongside the trauma surgeons and provide 24-7 coverage for our trauma inpatients and then even respond to new incoming trauma patients for active resuscitation. We manage these patients throughout their entire hospitalization, see them from when they first enter the trauma bay, rounding on them daily both in the surgical intensive care unit and even the regular floor, usually we're evaluating patients multiple times a day and eventually discharging them once they're medically ready. Seeing the patients throughout their whole hospitalization, watching their progress, and then eventually getting to see them be discharged is really rewarding and one of my favorite parts of our job. Colder and Stacy, thanks for being on the show. I'm excited to dive into this case study, which starts out with a male subject who received three gunshot wounds to the chest and was taken to a local hospital before being transferred to Wesley as a level one trauma alert. Colder, could you give us some insight into this case? He presented with stable vital signs. His original chest x-ray actually showed a bullet fragment overlying his cardiac silhouette. Subsequently, a CT scan an hour later found that the bullet was within the infrarenal aorta. An even later abdomen x-ray shows the bullet overlying the abdominal aorta. At this time, our trauma surgeon received a call from the outlying facilities provider and a request was made to transfer the patient to Wesley Medical Center Trauma Department as a level one trauma. We accepted and the EMS team was on their way with a 20-year-old male status post multiple gunshot wounds. Our trauma nurse received the first report from the EMS team and then activated the trauma response by paging it out to all the staff that responds to level one traumas. Not only is there the trauma surgeon, the trauma PA, like myself and Calder, and the trauma nurses, but there's also respiratory therapy, ultrasound tech, radiology tech, lab, blood bank, pharmacy, anesthesia, and an additional SICU charge nurse that helps out, plus all the additional residents and students who are working alongside with us. That is a lot of healthcare providers. I know, it can be difficult. Space is limited and it can become fairly crowded really quick. It's important to have everyone keep quiet in order for report and verbal orders to be heard. Plus, on top of all of that, we try to keep the trauma bay between 83 and 85 degrees Fahrenheit so it can feel really warm in there. Having a hot room, warm blankets, warm IV fluid can really help in a hypothermic patient and in the patient with acute blood loss or hypovolemia as these patients are at risk of also becoming hypothermic. EMS arrived to uh, Wesley Medical Center around 8 a.m. with the patient on a stretcher. The room fell quiet as we listened to EMS give the report to everyone. And this is re- a really important moment to have the 20 so odd members of the team pay attention to what the EMS team is telling us on the initial presentation. 
And as another side note, it's always helpful for EMS to repeat their report again. I know it may seem tedious as they have called in the report already to the trauma nurse, but oftentimes there are people in the room who didn't hear all the details. Plus, things like vitals, GCS, a lot of things can change drastically in a trauma patient from when the original report was called in. Once the patient was moved over to our bed, I began the primary survey or primary assessment. This consists of a stepwise approach to quickly assess the patient for any immediate and emergent interventions. It consists of a mnemonic ABCDE, focusing on the airway first. A quick reminder, the primary survey includes A for airway maintenance with cervical spine protection, B breath sounds and ventilation, C is circulation including hemorrhage control, D disability including neurostatus, a quick tool we use is their Glasgow Coma Scale, and E is exposure and environmental control, which includes completely undressing the patient while also preventing hypothermia. Next, I remember assessing the patient's airway by first introducing myself and allowing the patient time to respond. I try to pay close attention to the quality of the voice or see if the patient's even mentally aware enough to respond. Then I quickly listened to his breath sounds, side was diminished, and upon inspection I recognized that he had three separate gunshot wounds just lateral to the right nipple. Simultaneously, during my exam, the ultrasound tech and radiologist begin their EFAST exam. They identify bilateral pleural effusions during this test. The patient remains stable with blood oximetry of 95% on room air, heart rate in the 90s, blood pressure 116 over 60. I completed my primary assessment, which included rolling the patient to look at every inch and crevice of skin for other gunshot wounds that had not been found. Another quick reminder is that the EFAST stands for Extended Focused Assessment with Sonography for Trauma. This is completed via an ultrasound machine. It helps us determine if the patient has any free fluid in their abdomen, which could potentially mean internal bleeding or hemorrhage. They also look for pleural sliding of the lung. No pleural sliding can indicate a possible pneumothorax. Luckily, this patient didn't have any immediate interventions that were required, but we did identify a new problem that was not seen at the outside facility. His right leg had no dorsalis pedis or posterior tibial pulses that were palpable. At the time, we were unsure of the exact etiology, and we attributed it to vasospasm. Next, we ordered a chest x-ray that did show some diffuse hazy opacities to the right lung, and then I moved on to perform the secondary survey. A secondary survey includes a full head-to-toe physical exam, including getting the patient's past medical history, past surgical history, social history, allergies, meds, or whatever else they need to tell us. Each region of the body is completely examined. We try our best not to miss any injuries, especially in an unresponsive patient. Next up was more imaging. The patient had stable vital signs, so we decided it was safe to take a trip to the CT scanning room to perform a CT angiography study of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. This study identified that the bullet had migrated to the right common iliac artery, and additionally, a small bullet fragment was still lodged in the right ventricle of the heart. So to summarize the chest x-rays and the CTs that were completed in sequence, initially the bullet was visualized over the patient's right ventricle of his heart on the outside first chest x-ray that was completed. The bullet then migrated to the left ventricle and was ejected through the ascending aorta with the outgoing oxygenated blood and then down through the thoracic and abdominal aorta and was currently now lodged in the right common iliac artery.
After the CT scan, the trauma surgeon determined the need for an emergent surgery, and we took the patient to the operating room with consultation to the cardiothoracic and vascular surgery teams. First, attention was brought to his chest where a median sternotomy was performed. Bilateral hemothoraces were noted, and a bullet wound in the right ventricle was identified. Surprisingly enough, the bullet wound had spontaneously sealed, so no further repair was required. But bilateral chest tubes were placed, and a mediastinal tube also secured before the chest was closed. So the bullet wound in the right ventricle spontaneously sealed? Yeah, apparently there was no need to suture or repair the wound to the ventricle per the cardiothoracic and trauma surgeons, as it was already closed. Attention was then moved to the abdomen, where an exploratory laparotomy was performed. Even though bowel edema was seen on the CT scan, no obvious hollow viscous injury was identified during the surgery. However, there was a bullet palpable in the right common iliac artery. This led the surgeons to extract the bullet via a longitudinal arteriotomy. So with removal of the bullet, one would expect reperfusion and the pulses to return. But on exam, this wasn't the case. That's right, Stacy. Actually, after the bullet was successfully removed and the abdomen was closed, further attention was moved towards the patient's right leg, since earlier we had identified there were no pulses. In the operating room, there were still no dopplerable dorsalis pedis or posterior tibial pulses. The right lower extremity was cool to touch, and at this time, the patient was diagnosed with compartment syndrome of the right lower extremity. A fasciotomy was then performed and severe muscle bulging was noted in the anterior and lateral lower leg compartments. Even after the bullet was removed, the patient still had a lack of blood flow to his right leg due to the compartment syndrome. Compartment syndrome is common in trauma and it can occur in any site in which muscle is contained within a closed fascial space. Ischemic tissue becomes swollen and further decreases blood flow to the affected area. Most providers refer to the six P's when thinking of compartment syndrome. This includes pulselessness, pallor, paresthesia, paralysis, pain out of proportion, and poikilothermia, which is the coolness of the extremity. All six of the P's may not be present, and always remember pulselessness is a late sign of compartment syndrome. Compartment syndrome requires a surgical consult, and in this case, the standard treatment is a fasciotomy to release the pressure that has built up under the fascia layer. Once this fasciotomy was completed in the operating room, the patient did now have have a return of the pulses to the lower leg, and the capillary refill was less than four seconds, both of these indicating adequate reperfusion. Overall, he tolerated the initial surgeries well without any major complications. He was admitted to the surgical intensive care unit under the trauma team's primary care. He had a relatively uncomplicated hospital course. The patient's chest tubes were kept to suction initially post-operative, and we followed the drainage closely. He was extubated on post-operative day one, and the patient was maintained on Esmolol, a beta blocker, to help keep his mean arterial blood pressure lower. He was also kept on an heparin drip for anticoagulation after surgery. This was specifically because of the injury to the right common iliac artery. The left chest tube and mediastinal drain were removed on post-operative day two by the cardiothoracic surgery team, while the right-sided chest tube was kept in place due to it having more output. Moving further through the patient's hospital course, on post-operative day four, he was transitioned from the heparin drip for anticoagulation to Lovenox. He was also started on aspirin by the vascular surgery team and will likely continue taking this medication for life. An echocardiogram, or an ultrasound of the heart, was performed 
confirming no heart valve damage. The right lower extremity fasciotomies were closed on postoperative day 8 by the vascular team, and the right-sided chest tube was removed on postoperative day 9 once it finally had small enough output. Throughout the patient's hospital course, he continued to have daily physical and occupational therapy treatments, and the patient was downgraded to the intermediate medical unit and then eventually to the regular floor. Eventually, he was stable for discharge to home on postoperative day 10. Given the trajectory of the bullet from the right heart through the systemic circulation, it was assumed that the patient had a ventricular, ventricular septal defect, which was to be investigated further as an outpatient, as we could not confirm this on our echocardiogram completed here. But wow, Calder, what an interesting case this was, and we always love a good outcome. If you're interested in learning more about the case of the magic bullet, you can find information on the entire case report in the Chest Journal. A special shout out Stacy and I wanted to do for everyone involved in the case study that was submitted. Dr. Catherine Forster, Dr. George Phillip, Michael Wynn, Jordan DeBrecht, Brian Gilbert, Dr. William Waswick, Dr. Diane Hunt, Dr. Andrew Henson, Dr. Christina Nicholas, and Dr. Scott Porter. Thank you very much. Thanks, Aaron, for having us. Stacy and Colder, thanks for taking time to be on the show. Come back with another case study soon. For our listeners, please remember you can always find learning objectives for each episode at wesleytraumatalk.podbean.com at the additional resources link found on the left-hand side of the page. We'll also be posting a link to this published article so you can read along. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next Even Tuesday.